Our sermon text this morning is from Mark chapter 12, verses 41 through 44. Hear the word of the Lord. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. Uh, There are many of you that I I, I don't recognize. My name is Riker. I am an intern with our presbytery. Uh, Myself and two other gentlemen at this church have the privilege of preaching a few times a year as we are going through seminary. So if you would please now pray with me as we turn our attention back to God's word and hearing him speak from us. Our Father and our God, we confess to you that we are a distracted people. We have many things, many good things, even now vying for our attention. Would you please still our minds and quiet our anxious hearts that we may hear from you? Would you come and speak to us this morning through your word? All glory be to you, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. I know a man who wants to build a bunker. Now this isn't a, a, a tornado room or a, a place to go in case of natural disaster. No, this would be his house. A, a strange kind of two-story structure built like an iceberg with a very small portion of it up top but the vast majority of it being subterranean. And under the ground he would have a, a kitchen for cooking and a shower for bathing and concrete walls to resist explosive concussions, and an air purification system in case there's radioactive particles in the air, and water filtration to make any outside contaminated water drinkable, and an armory to defend himself, and propane tanks to be able to run gas to the house in case the electrical grid collapses, and every every time we talk, something new to be added because there is always another potential threat, so there must always be another material solution. You see, what this man wants more than anything else in the world is self-sufficiency. And while I am certain that none of you here have any immediate plans to build a bunker, if we're honest with ourselves, we too deeply desire self-sufficiency. Oh, sure, we coded an easy-to-digest Americanese. I don't want to be a burden, a bother, a nuisance. But it's the same thing. We, we say, I don't want to trouble you. And the subtext is, I mean, if you had to do anything for me, then that would interfere with your pursuit of self-sufficiency, which really is the unpardonable sin in materialism. So I couldn't possibly put you out. Dear friends, it is time that we dispense with that nonsense. It is wholly unbiblical. To be sure, it is the American way. 
And it is so deeply ingrained in our bones and in our culture that I think we rarely consider the sinister implications. Our passage today will show us something that is completely anathema to our understanding of the world and how it functions. Christ elevates neediness above self-sufficiency. Christ elevates neediness above self-sufficiency, and we see this in two movements. The giving observed, verses 41 and 42, and second, the observation given, verses 43 and 44. The giving observed and the observation given. Let's begin with the giving observed here, verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Now, if, if you recall the context of the last six or seven sermons and have a pretty good working understanding of how the Mishnah describes the second temple, then you're up to speed with Mark. But for the rest of us, let's take a beat here and let's try to wrap our heads around the context and setting. Following his interrogation by the Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes, Jesus stays in the temple and teaches. We saw this last week. He now, probably tired, goes and sits down opposite what Mark calls the treasury, which, as we will see from later context, is almost certainly a particular type of offering box that would have been in the kind of middle ring of the temple, the, the court of the women, it was called. Further outside of that court was the court of the Gentiles, past which no Gentile could enter. Further beyond the court of the women was the court of the Israelites, or the court of the men, beyond which no woman could go. So Jesus is sitting down here in the middle part of this court, where there are 13 different receptacles spread around for donate into, six of them being used for what was deemed an excess offering. Now, which of these 13 it is exactly, we have no way of knowing. But by sheer probability, six out of 13, it's most likely they were going into an excess offering. And I think later in the text, we will see exactly that's what it is. However, what I'd like to draw your attention to right now is the sheer absurdity of Jesus being who he is, where he is. Because beyond the court of the men was the court of the Levites, where only the, the priestly Levites were allowed to go. And beyond that was the sanctuary. And beyond that, the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God dwelt on earth. One man, once a year, was able to go there, and never to enjoy God's presence, only and always to make atonement. But God was right there in the middle court. He was right there. They had full access to him. Never forget, Christ is the true temple. The building with all of its rules and regulations was only ever meant to point to him. It is why the Apostle John writes that the creating, pre-existing word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. They were literally in the presence of God. Now, friends, to be sure, we do not experience God's presence in this same manner. Christ is at God's right hand. 
But when we as the body of Christ, empowered by his spirit, raise our voices together as one singular voice to sing praises to our one God, when we confess our sins to him corporately, when we hear him speak to us through the pardon, the reading of scripture, and the preaching of his word, when we take and eat and drink from his table, friends, we are in the holy of holies. We are in the presence of God as his covenant people, just as they are. And so we have this peculiar scene where the antitype Christ sits within the type the temple and observes people interacting with a sign that was only ever meant to point to him. But what does he observe? Giving. Described in the second part of verse 41 and 42. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. It is this widow's contribution, when compared with the contribution of the rich, that make it plainly clear that, that this receptacle for giving was designated for excess offerings. Remember, there were 13 in total, six for excess offerings, and two were for purchasing various kinds of birds. Two of them were for shekels, that's 10. One each for wood, frankincense, and gold, 13. And why do I think that this box that Jesus is looking at is for excess offering? Well, because neither gift makes any sense if it's either of the two offering boxes for birds, nor the one for wood. The disparity is too great, so it's either way too much for birds and woods or not enough. We know that it's not either of the boxes for shekels because the widow did not have a shekel to offer. And it's far too small an amount to purchase any frankincense and since her coins were not gold, she could not have been casting them into the gold. That is seven of the 13 boxes that the Mishnah describes ruled out, which means that all that is left are the six boxes for excess offering. And, and it makes the most sense. As Jesus is sitting, he sees many rich people who have much excess donate large sums of money to the excess offering. But then, someone noteworthy enter his, enters his view as a poor widow walks up and donates her excess offering, two coins that equal one penny, which now provides Jesus with a teachable moment. The giving has been observed and so Jesus now gives his observation to his disciples, the observation given, verses 43 and 44. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. What an absolutely bizarre thing to say. I mean, on the face of it, it's just factually wrong. If I held up a penny and I held up a $100 bill and I said, pick which one is more, this penny or this $100 bill, or to say it another way, this penny or this representation of 10,000 pennies, the $100 bill is always the right answer. It's just more pennies. Jesus is not proposing we change our basic understanding of numbers. So, so, so what is he getting at here? Well, some people have argued that Jesus is actually focused not on the amount, but on the percentages. Their line of reasoning goes something like this. If someone had one penny and someone else had two $100 bills, 
and you were asked to choose what is more, this person's one penny or one of the two $100 bills, well, then there's a line of reasoning that says the penny is more because it's a higher percentage, 100% instead of 50%. So there is a manner of speaking where that is true. But friends, that, that is not how Jesus is speaking. It just isn't what he's getting at. And we know that because he tells us what he's getting at here in verse 44. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. You see, it has absolutely nothing to do with amounts or percentages. It has everything to do with motivations, with her heart. Of course it does. It always does with Jesus. Now you may be thinking to yourself, Riker, it very clearly says in the text that she gave everything she had and they gave out of their abundance. And to me, that sounds exactly like a percentage thing. And that's fair, but I would say that I think you're missing the point of what Jesus is saying because he doesn't stop his sentence when he says everything she had. Look, look, look at the text with me. There's a comma, and then he continues his thought to, to fill it out, all she had to live on. Literally translated her entire life. It isn't that she gave her last two coins. It is that in doing so, she is actually giving her life as an offering. She is a widow, which of course means she has outlived her husband. And since she is a poor widow, we can be certain that she did not have any living children. It would have been their responsibility to care for her. And she has the equivalence of $4 in today's monetary system. So we know that, that there were no living children. So without saying it, Mark shows us that she has no family to care for her. She has no one else to fall back on. And therefore, in giving the last of her money, she obeys Jesus' teaching, perhaps unknowingly, as she, being created in the image of God, renders herself unto God. In that way, she contributes far more than what any of the rich contribute. They give their excess money, and she offers her life. And she considers her meager remaining money, all that she has, to be excess. What a profound lesson we learned from this unnamed Jewish woman who lived 2,000 years ago. But I have to ask you, though, does it make you uncomfortable? I mean, it certainly is not sound financial advice. And you can see how a passage like this could be horribly dangerous in the hands of a wolf wanting to fleece the flock of God. But friends, money isn't the point. The money is merely the application of the principle Christ elevates neediness over self-sufficiency. Here, in our text, personified in the real-life characters of the many self-sufficient rich who gave in their excess, and the widow who considered all that she had to be excess, thereby making herself needy. To be sure, money is an application, not just in the story, but in our own lives. But this principle plays out in a multitude of ways. The funny thing about that is, as I was thinking about the ways that this plays through, I think almost every way other than money, we would heartily amen. They just don't rub across the grain of our culture as directly. 
Christ elevates neediness over self-sufficiency when it comes to your righteousness. You are not holy enough to earn God's favor, but those who by the grace of God recognize their neediness fall before him and beg their sins forgiven. Amen. Christ elevates neediness over self-sufficiency when it comes to serving others. You do not have it in you to provide gospel care for people out of your own kindness, graciousness, or patience. But you need Christ to minister through you by the work of his spirit, else your service amounts to nothing. Amen. Christ elevates neediness over self-sufficiency when it comes to money. Well, I, I don't know about that one, Riker. Insert 1,000 reasons, real or imagined, that you really do need to remain financially self-sufficient. But dear friends, that is the picture that Mark just painted for us. Now let me clarify, I am not recommending you cash in your 401k and give it all to the church. It is worth noting that Jesus does not condemn the materially self-sufficient like he does the morally self-sufficient. No, instead, he elevates neediness above self-sufficiency in our text, specifically with regard to money. And so in light of that, I would encourage you to take a good look at your finances and really consider what neediness could look like in your life. That could mean expanding your grocery budget to be more hospitable instead of buying new clothes. It could mean increasing the support of a missionary that you know personally. It could look like finding out who in our congregation is in need and dipping into your savings account to share the burden with them. It could look like giving more money to St. Andrews. And all of this, not because the widow gave her two last coins, but because of what she points forward to in the giving of her life. You embrace neediness because Christ gave his life for you. On the cross, he poured out his life because of our neediness, because he has given us everything we have, life and breath, justification and the indwelling Holy Spirit, and our material resources, be they great or meager which really means that self-sufficiency is at best an illusion and at worst self-deification. It's a cliche, but the old adage rings true. You can't take it with you. So if you don't have your life, every moment of which is a gift from God, then it does not matter how well off you are financially. Money cannot reanimate your corpse and you cannot buy your way into heaven. Friends, the only one who is actually and truly self-sufficient, not only self-sufficient, self-existent, needing nothing from anyone or anything, elevates neediness as he became poor and needy for our sake. So would we as his people seek to emulate him and not the culture that we live in? Would we seek to use all of our resources, not only the excess that we've delegated as comfortable, for his purposes? And would we embrace monetary neediness should the Lord ever exalt us to such a calling? Please pray with me. Our Father, we ask that you would apply your word to our hearts. Please help us see our neediness and run to you. Give us wisdom with how best to use all of the gifts that you have given to us. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.